if you watch the latest video of No Pun Included, uh, right at the very end of our Trailblazers review, I say, oh yeah, we're not accepting review copies from publishers anymore. So I just wanted to briefly use the intro of this podcast to explain why and what's going on and how it's going to work. Yes, we're not accepting review copies from publishers anymore. That doesn't mean we're not accepting games from publishers. I have just bought a game at full price from a publisher who said, do you want this? And I said, yes, but can I please buy it at full price? And they said, yeah, sure. So so that that's the thing, you know, because that's pretty much the same as buying from a shop. I don't see any issue with that. Uh, but there's some new UK regulations that are a little woolly and there's like guidelines on three different organizations uh and uh essentially it, it forces us to put ad not not just the word ad not just uh you know in the video saying hey we received a review copy this is an advert but we literally have to put it either in the title or the thumbnail if it's a youtube video or in the title if it's a podcast unless from what i understand uh, it's not the sole subject of whatever it is we're talking about. So, for example, in a podcast episode where we had, uh, say, two games that were not review copies and one game that was a review copy, we wouldn't have to put ad in the title, but we would have to warn before the segment that features a review copy. So so this doesn't affect the podcast so much, but but we still have some review copies left. And as always, we'll be informing you if it is a review copy but we won't be accepting new review copies because we're not just going to bin the games that were sent to us already. Um, That'd be rude. That would be very rude. Um, so this is kind of a brief disclaimer on what's happening. Why is it happening? Uh, and and some of my personal feelings, I hate this. This doesn't make any sense. I recognize the need to have more oversight and more legislation on how people promote things on the internet. I think that is important because transparency is an issue. Not a lot of people uh, say that they've been sponsored or, or that they have received free product. Uh, and I think disclosure is important. But there's also, this is kind of, like I said, you know, like you know setting fire to a forest if you're trying to get rid of some wasps or something like that because um this is just a blanket policy that affects people who do reviews and that's you know editorial standards are different and they're different in different industries they're not asking how does this work for board games how does this work for video it doesn't matter everything has the same blanket rule in the united kingdom it seems uh we it's some there's some contradiction whether this applies to editorial content or not uh but it seems that it does and um, uh, specifically reviews. So you, who knows? For the meanwhile, uh, personally, we were kind of annoyed by review copies anyway because they uh, bring in all kinds of expectations and, you know, some publishers are pretty good about it, some are not so much. Uh, we had weird interactions with publishers after receiving a review copy. Uh, so uh, good riddance in a way for us. Uh, it's financially expensive uh, at which point, I'd like to say that if you enjoy the Talk Cardboard podcast, uh, if this is your first episode, I'm sorry that this was the preamble, uh, but we'll we'll talk about board games. That's what happens here. We talk about board games. But this is like an important thing that affects a lot of people, and it affects the internet in general. So, you know, if you enjoy Talk Cardboard, the podcast, or if you enjoy Open Included, and you, you want to support independent media, which we effectively are now completely independent of anyone or anything in any way um if 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 you enjoy people who just you know 
take a game player and share their opinions uh and and you like the way we do it why not support us on patreon.com slash no point included bad news yes. i think you have to mark this as an advert now because you've just advertised a product that we are selling we're which not is sell- a podcast well i guess if someone pays us for it this is this is not the sole subject of the podcast. This is self-promotion. I think it's fine. My big issue with it, if you don't mind me yeah, chipping in on this, is that I think it muddies the the water a lot more because the policy for someone who say someone uh, was paid by a publisher, uh, the publisher sent them the board game. The publisher said, not that anyone would necessarily do this, but mm. but they sent them the board game. Said. Okay, this is what we want you to say about this board game. Mm. Uh, so they were given almost a script of what to say, uh, and we'll pay you, you know, X pounds, dollars, whatever, to say this. Yeah, that would be the same. That would have the same tag as us receiving a board game completely independently from someone who just sent us the game, and we spoke about it with our own views and influenced by n- no one. Yeah, that's less clear, isn't it? Yes. It's it's not good for anyone. It's not good for the people listening It's not or watching. It's not good for the people who talk about these things. It's not good for publishers either. It, it's bad for everyone. So, um, yeah, uh, but, but it is what it is. It and is we're going to roll with the punches and continue completely independent of anyone apart from your support. Without you, literally couldn't do this. And uh, we also offer bonus episodes to Patreon supporters of this podcast every time a main episode comes out. So if you'd like to chuck us a few bucks and make us a little bit more sustainable, that would be appreciated. And our lovely Discord community. Oh yeah, let's not forget that. Yeah, Uh, Elaine, what have we got on the show today? Welcome to Talk Cardboard, a podcast about board games and everything adjacent with your cardboard companions, Elaine and... Me, Efka. On today's show, we'll be trying to grow an ecosystem in Earth, collecting little wooden flowers in Lacuna and restoring the Dominion in Voidfall. First, a quick correction, though. I said that Jane Austen was writing in 1750 on the last podcast episode, which is not true at all, and she wouldn't be born for another 25 years. When you said that, I was like, 1750? That sounds a bit early. So that's on me. I didn't. I didn't pipe up. I was like, "Does that, does that sound no. right?" I anyway. I had the date eighteen. I just couldn't get all the dates in my head correctly. Sorry. Mm. Let's get to the games. Uh, let's talk about a game that's set somewhere we've all lived at one time or another. Earth comes from publisher Inside Up Games by designer Maxime Tardif, with art by several different artists. I was not looking forward to Earth. Why? You know, I don't know. It's just. It feels bored of it, bored of Earth. <laughs> done with it. Let's, done with it. Yeah, let's go somewhere else. Um, yeah, no. this game set on Earth. <laughs> How boring. How boring. Yeah. I, no, I was not looking forward to it because of the genre that mm. it traipses into, which is, um, you know, 200 cards make something out of them. Uh, and it is a genre that's been around for some time. I think... I think it started with games uh, like Race for the Galaxy. I think that's the big popular one from the early days, which is like, here's so many cards. Can you take some of them and build more points than other players by combining them in various combinatorial ways? 
then, of course, there was Terraforming Mars. That was the next big hit, which introduced even more systems. So it wasn't just these cars. There was a board. There was, like, all these ancillary bits. And there was, like, you know, cards that kind of employed a, a simulationist thematic sense. Oh, you're trying to terraform Mars. You have oxygen. You know, it needs to go up. You have plant life. It needs to go up and all that sort of... But then, of course, the next big hit was Ark Nova. That was, again, the reemergence of the genre. The Wingspan, also part of that kind of caliber of games. Uh, and, and finally, we have another one that feels very reminiscent to Ark Nova in terms of setting, because whilst Ark Nova was about, like, making a zoo, and you have all these tiles, and, you know, you have all these animals, they need to coexist together, you'll get various points for various things. Uh, Earth is not about the fauna it's about the flora you have all these plants like mushrooms and apple trees and birches and pines and moss and you know that kind of stuff and and there are animals but they're only scoring conditions because uh, at the start of each game you'll have random scoring conditions like make a place that's nice for earthworms <laughs> you're like yeah let's make this a nice place for worms and and so you build all these Flora cards, you, you're creating a tableau, you're going to end the game, hopefully, with 16 cards. 16 cards triggers the end of the game. You're building a 4x4 four four grid of cards of these various plants that create a symbiotic environment. Uh, and uh, there are, like, literally something like 200 cards that you'll draw from. And, and a lot of them are going to be like, that's punk, I don't want that, make that go away. Uh, and then, oh, this is good. I'm gonna play it. You know that it's that kind of thing. I think people, if if you if people have been dabbling in board games, they will have ac come across at least one of these, at least Wingspan, if not Terraforming Mars, if not Ark Nova, if not Race for the Galaxy. Then you know, one of them, one of them will have been in there. Uh, so that's why I wasn't excited. I was sort of mildly pleasantly surprised. I enjoyed Earth. Don't don't lean too heavy into that, Efka. <laughs> okay, well, I don't... You know, it's still not a genre that I love, right? It is always a genre I kind of admired from a distance. Uh, Terraforming Mars and Ark Nova, I just don't... Oh, can I have a little Efka rant? I'm going to have a little Efka rant. Okay, I'm just going to have a little Efka rant. <laughs> so, so when I did my video for Ark Nova, I was like... Right, what I don't enjoy about Ark Nova is that you... Um, you know, you have like cards like that score off of each other, like bears, right? And you, you, you know, you think, oh, okay, I could do this bear strategy because that's what the game is telegraphing. And then you draw through these cards and you find out that bears are incredibly rare. You can't do it. And the whole point of me saying that was like, I was saying, look, I understand that that's the way the game was designed. I'm saying I'm not enjoying this element that it was designed like that because it doesn't feel natural, right? It's like almost the game is saying hey, do this, this might be fun. And then it's, <laughs> you, you can't do this. And people were commenting like, oh, you don't understand. You don't, if you play this game enough that like you, you would know that you can't play it like that. I'm like, yes, I know you can't play it like that. It's not fun. I'm not enjoying playing like that. If you're giving me these things that are meant to be combined together and you're saying, well, it doesn't really work like that, then then maybe there's a problem with the... Anyway, that's... Did you feel like that in Earth as no, well? No, I didn't. So, and I think that's partly why I enjoyed it. I did. It. Did you really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, 
I think everyone is on the same footing though, because mm. if you've got the, I had a goal of shrubs, get shrubs yeah. into my tableau. Yeah. And could I get a shrub? No, I could not. <laughs> Everything I drew was not a shrub. And I even said to you, because you took some cards. No, I took some cards accidentally when it was your turn to take yeah. cards. And I said, was one of them a shrub? Because like, the, the, yeah. if it was, then I regret, you know, accidentally going first. But I, could I get a shrub? No, I couldn't. So I think everyone is on the same footing because all of you are experiencing the same thing. Mm. Uh, if I need shrubs and you need mushrooms, I have as much chance of getting a shrub as you have of getting a mushroom, which is fine. But I still, I think it depends on your experience of the game. Maybe. So the way I had a, um, I, th I think it, I can't remember what the type of tree that I had mm. uh, that like scored off of if I had more of that type of tree. Uh, I, I had a card that said basically, because you place cards in a four by four grid, uh, there is now a spatial element to it. So, for example, it said every tree in this column, when you activate this ability, will get like a free growth. And growth is like one of the stats on the card. So you literally put these like little wooden pieces that you stack on top. With and little then the hats. Yeah, the last one has like a little <laughs> hat. Like, oh, it finished growing now. It said it's maximum height. It's really nice. So every card has like various like little things that kind of you can power up as the game continues. So you can have like sprouts, which are the, mm. these little green cubes. You can have growth, which are these little like wooden discs that you stack on top of each other uh, with a hat. And then... Yeah, there's various other like scoring conditions, but it also has things like positionality, where it said like, oh, every every card on on of this type, it wasn't shrub for me. It was something like tree, but like I can't remember <laughs> whether it was a specific okay. type of yeah. tree or just tree, right? Every tree you have in this column will get a free growth every time you activate it, and because of the spatial element, I could be like, okay, well, I don't have any trees now, right? But we are digging through this deck like, you know, like moles dig through earth. Pasta. Oh. Because they dig. Oh, oh, well. Uh, uh, no, right? Oh, nice, yeah. Thank you. Anyway, um, you know, eventually I'll get these trees going, you know. And sure, lo and behold, eventually I got trees. I just kept those spaces open. Because whilst you do have to place cards adjacently next to existing cards... It can be like diagonal mm. or orthogonal, mm. you know. So you can you can sort of save yourself these spaces, and then once you get the right card, you can be like, yeah, that goes there. And you know what the funny thing was? There was like so I got more trees, but they were like also trees that weren't the right trees for me. And I was like, rather than placing this tree here because just because it's a tree, you know, every card that you place scores points you know it, it has a potential for growth a potential for sprouts so every card you place you kind of evaluate what's the maximum point scoring potential of this card and is it worth it to place just because mm. it does like trigger off a bonus of this one card you know there were a lot of like considerations like that 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 made it less reliant on that like do these like tags combine and more like you know, what are all the factors that are combined in this card that kind of play off of each other? Does that make sense? 
Yeah, I, I agree very much. And mm-hmm. I started this a little bit negatively only because you started with a rant. So I'm blaming you on that. But yeah. but there are a lot of things I liked about this. I yeah. liked, like you're saying, like the synergy between the cards and how they work mm-hmm. together. Um, like I had uh, a row that said, for every mushroom in this row, add a sprout. Mm. So, or, yeah, so things did work together. It's not like I couldn't ever find a card that I needed like all the cards work together nicely I d- it was the kind of end score it was scoring that I was having a problem with not yeah. the, the things working together but what I really liked about it was that there's no real downtime because on your turn you get your action and then the other player or players also get like a mini version of that action mm. so you're never kind of waiting for people to take their turn because you're thinking oh what am I going to do with that action that they've chosen mm. so I like that a lot about it and I liked I mean I like the artwork because it's animals yeah and I like animals well it's not animals oh well th- trees and shrubs yeah well, I was thinking of the worms yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> thinking of the earthworms yeah. but yeah I think the artwork was really nice uh, and I liked how it all worked together um it was just and i liked also how we had our uh separate goals but we also had shared goals that we were racing to get to Mm. so because we each had um and we each had different like places where we started that worked differently with the actions uh and added to different things it was it was clever oh yeah the the starting zones are hilarious because it's like it's it's combined out of free cards so one tells you what island it is then the other one tells you the climate and then the other tells you like the type of like because I had something like, oh, here's a tropical swampland in the Antarctic. I'm like, <laughs> what? Okay, you know. Uh, so that Why was not? that was quite funny. But I think we're burying the lead, and you, and and you kind of got to it. What's really cool about this game is that every card you add to, to the tableau also has like a special ability that will trigger over and over and over again. That kind of just fuels these mm. cards and populates it with these groves and sprouts and you know like l- lets you dig for more cards and uh it was really quite something you know like it just this this engine balloons mm. really really balloons and the cool system here is that there's basically four actions and each of them are tied to a color so when you take an action like you said you get the big version of that action the other players get the little version of the action but that version has a color and then all the cards of that color in your tableau in in everyone's tableaus yeah Yeah, everyone gets to trigger all of the things so whenever anyone takes any action you almost don't regret that it wasn't quite the right action for you because it it then just will trigger all these things that will just everyone goes into this like tank and goes Oh, okay, so if I do this, and then I do this, and it, it was almost like that moment in Furnace. Do you remember Furnace? Yeah. Right? Where, like, this, everyone did the auctioning, and then after that, it's like, this card resolves, and then this card resolves, and then this card resolves, and then this card resolves, and I combine this, and then I get that, and then I spend this, and I take that, and then I get this, and I convert it into these things, and it's just like, boom. I was tired after this game. I was exhausted. <laughs> I mean, like, building an ecosystem is difficult, Efka. I was sweating. Like, I was genuinely perspiring. <laughs> my, my brain was sweating. What you said about the actions is all right if you don't have an action that you are doing particularly badly at, like that you don't have any real cards in or mm. like you can't really do that action and someone else could potentially take that action to mess you up. Yeah. But I think... 
I don't think that that would happen too much because everyone is concentrating so much on their own ecosystem that I don't think necessarily it would come up that you would try and mess up someone else's turn. No, but there, there's some interesting considerations that come out of that as well. There were like scoring cards that were uh, like if you if you place this in your tableau, you cannot take this action Ooh, again yeah. in the game. <laughs> like, and there's only four types of actions. So, like for example. Uh, there is there is an action that gives you soil, which is like the currency that you pay uh, for cards to play them in your tableau. So you need that. And I guess you could rely on other people taking that action, you always getting the smaller version of that. But maybe the scoring condition is good enough that it upset, offsets you never being able to take the main action, but you also have a lot of cards that provide you with that yeah. soil mm. from like anytime anyone does the red action so you lose some control but maybe you get the, like this cool scoring condition there's there's so many chewy things and what i think what for me sets it apart and brings it whilst it's unwieldy in the way that terraforming mars and arc nova is because there's a lot of cards it did remind me more of like that race to the galaxy for the galaxy rhythm where all the cards are just sort of variations on the theme yes right it, it they all have very familiar tangible elements like you know almost all cards let you have growth almost all cards let you have sprouts almost all cards have um you know a point value and then almost all cards have some sort of an ability right that will trigger off again and again and again and so it's like they're, they're all different weights of these four sliding scales and and in that way, they felt a lot more tangible and manageable mm. to exist in this ecosystem. If they felt like an ecosystem. Right, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I like that. I, I also like that the game employs a, a mechanism that understands that you're going to be drawing through a lot of these cards. So it literally has another scoring pile. Like you, you can compost cards? You, you can you can basically recycle them, right? Mm. Uh, meaning you put them into this special discard pile where each card will score you one point. But again, it leverages that because it says, for example, hey, first person to reach us like 15 cards in that compost pile will also score additional points yeah, or whatever. Yeah, that was our scoring, one of our scoring conditions. Yeah, it might not be in your game because there's actually quite a lot of variable scoring conditions. But yeah, no, I, I, I like that it, it knew the genre it was trading in and it leveraged what people do in those genres to kind of make it more ma it's still unwieldy yeah it is not condensed in the same way that the base game of race for the galaxy is but but it felt better than arc nova or terraforming mars for me uh but yeah it did make me sweat that game made me tired <laughs> i liked how um so there was the action to get soil mm. but if i wanted to get soil that was not my best play my best play was the water in action because mm. i had so many other cards that would let me get soil from doing the water in action that that's what i wanted to do so you're right it does merge into each other mm. really well mm. i it it's good i like earth i think if you have a partial interest in this genre if, in this in this wingspan terraforming mars race for the galaxy arc noah genre you know, somewhere in the, in the intersection where all of these things meet mm. sits Earth and it sits there quite comfortably and quite well. I did. I, I do also want to mention I did like the artwork. I think 
um so it's stock footage again like uh arc nova was but because it's all plants mostly there's, there's some cards with animals but like it's all plants it, it feels more cohesive it feels more i don't know it just it's not as nice as if it were just artwork you know uh because it's still stock photography but it's stock photography that's pleasant enough that it doesn't intrude on the game and it feels i don't know it feels like it belongs it's fine it's definitely better than terraforming mars because that game was i just realized i said i really like the artwork in something with stock footage yeah i yeah. like stock footage Well, because it, the graphic design is nice and it complements the game mm. right it complements the mm. artwork it, it's not overly intrusive i think terraforming mars does bad stock footage photography and then bad graphic design uh you know that makes that game look not great um i also like that it had a little blurb about each plant uh, well you love that in games yeah the factoids yeah i do do love a little fact yeah about the the thing that you're doing it's like a fortune cookie you know like well because because you know you open it up and oh here's a little thing i'll read it yeah but it's telling me about it's like plants it's yeah, not yeah. telling me i'm gonna win the lottery it's like it? the, the better version of a christmas cracker like instead of a naff joke uh-huh. you you get like a little plant fact yes i mean you could have a, a set of christmas crackers with plant facts and there's nothing stopping you doing that maybe that's what we should do at christmas my lack of desire is what's stopping oh. me doing that okay i won't do that then I said last episode that I wished that there was more board game fan fiction and Bob wrote in to share a link from McSweeney's.net of some Catan fan fiction that set out like a diary of a settler. I really enjoyed reading it, so thank you very much, Bob, for this. It has entries like this. Are you ready for this, F? Yeah, go on. March 9, a note on the sheep. It appears that they are the only animal in all of Catan. Strange. I cannot help but slightly mistrust this place. I see. And then it also has entries, which I'm not going to read out, but it also has entries of things like, we really need to food. We, Captain, we are so hungry. We, we really need to find food. No, we must build roads. That is what we will do. Build roads. Just, it was quite funny. It was quite it, silly. and quite. But I do understand now why you said, I think fan fiction is a bad idea. Okay, good. All right. <laughs> I was like ready to when you started reading this out I was ready to correct myself and go oh well you know maybe I was maybe I was putting too much doubt into something that could be good but yeah okay okay We also had an email from Chaz about the Andrew Navarro interview regarding how some of Andrew's favorite games in his collection were those with wear and tear Chaz says It got me thinking about the way some wear and tear can be beautiful and give objects character. It made me think of the word patina, which specifically refers to the ageing of copper, brass and bronze, but has been made generalised to mean any process of surface change due to age in anything like leather, wood, metal. Maybe sustainable games can be marketed differently. Zhuzh it up by calling it the patina edition. Make it a sellable idea. Rather than a spot UV, you get a game that can show its age by becoming a beloved keepsake. Honestly, the stuff that belonged to my grandparents that looked like it hadn't aged a day seems odd and out of place. Think original Tupperware. But bought what? But worn leather-bound copies of books, beloved woodworking tools and slightly marred cufflinks carry my grandfather's essence. So I got this bit out of the interview, but I was I was telling Andrew when when he said that about uh, our friend John Cox, who um, 
has his copy of Tichu that he, he really wanted to show Tichu to us. This is before I played Tichu. And he said, I really want to show Tichu to you. I really, it's just great. I love it. Right. I'm like, okay, okay. And so he took it out and <laughs> it looked, it looked like, uh, you know, he found it in his, inside of his grandparents' <laughs> fireplace or something like that. You know, from under the chimney, you know, like it, it looked worn, right? Grind like, of a thousand fingers. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Mm. It, it, it looked like it was played. And I was like, wow, you do really love this game. So, you know, that's cool. I think that's, that's pretty neat. And... Uh, I, I do like games to show their wear. Uh, and I've had some people, funnily enough, comment on the Trailblazers review saying like, oh, oh, hey, but no, you, you don't get it. Like with the plastic cards, they last longer. That's that's nice. Do so, you want to tell them about that, Efka? <laughs> yeah. Okay. There's two things. First of all, uh, if you bought the deluxe version of of the plastic cards, you could have bought free copies of the of the little travel case with the carabiner of the game free copies not n- not one copy free copies if you're so insistent on protecting these cards the second thing is let me tell you as someone who had to film a video for trailblazers those plastic cards scuff <laughs> yes they do they scuff quite badly they scuff from just like being shuffled on the table because there's big parts yeah. mm-hmm. and someone said oh they're easier to shuffle when they're plastic no they're not they're not easy to shuffle period they're, they're funny a, shape. yeah they're a weird shape they're a domino shape you're never going to be able to shuffle them properly uh, and i think both both the plastic and the paper versions are going to have their own difficulties in shuffling um i did not find them easy to shuffle at all I agree with this sentiment in principle. Like a game that is loved Mm. and played is nice, right? It's nice to come across that. But I think the issue is when you have cards, like you're saying, that, I mean, maybe in Trailblazers it doesn't matter so much because there's so many of them. You couldn't possibly remember every card. But if you were playing a game that had fewer cards then you it would they would be marked like if you if the back of them was yeah. you know had a blob on it or something then you would know what card that sure, was sure but just you know like i i guess there 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 are moments where like i, I think it depends on functionality is it, what I'm it trying does to say, yeah it does but i wouldn't be so precious about it because uh whilst we're spending so much money on like these pristine artifacts that we hope to keep like unblemished forever you know just just roll the dice just live with it and if you do mark one of these games then you know be like okay i really want this game you know to be functional you can solve that a with a sleeve if you really need to or b just you know buy another copy but overall in the big picture you will save money by not doing that right by not having them be pristine um anyway sorry um i know there's weird exclusions and in oh but in this game or in that case i get it but 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 maybe we've gone overboard a little bit you know still to come we have our first impressions of voidfall but now the first game i've ever played that uses a salt shaker as a mechanism Lacuna comes from publisher CMYK by designer Mark Gerritz with art by Nick Leafheber. So what's the salt shaker thing? Go on, you tell us. You know what it is. You All know right. what it is. Okay, okay. so CMYK Games, uh, publisher of wavelength monikers, fuzzies, spots, uh, lots of games that I really wanted to love. 
uh, I, I like Monica's. I, I think Monica's is pretty good. But then again, Monica's, you know, aside from it being curated, it's just a re-implementation of a folk game, isn't it? Like a Victorian parlor game. And I always felt like they were scratching at something that's like very light, very approachable, right? But it never had that, you know, that that kind of wow factor that kept me in, you know, and, and kept me hooked and and made me want to go back to it because it, it also had that sort of gamey, chewy bit, right? And when I looked at Lacuna the first time, which, I mean, find a picture of, type in Lacuna board game, find a picture of it, have a look at how it looks. It's gorgeous because these little wooden flower pieces, it, it comes in a rolled tube. It's got a cloth board that's sort of like this, almost like a starry sky kind of motif with flowers. You know, it's somewhere between a starry sky. a big sky. hole in the middle. Yeah, with a big hole in the middle. Not a hole, a blank space. Not yeah. a hole. Yeah, it, it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's aesthetically very pleasing, you know. I thought, well, it's probably going to be another CMYK game that I want to love, but... I'm not quite loving. I am wrong. I loved, I genuinely, fundamentally love this game. And and I know you do too, because did, so yeah. very rarely you go, can we play that again right now? <laughs> and you did. And, and if that's not a mark of a great game, I don't know what is. If you've been on, if you've seen, because a lot of people are talking about Lacuna, it is definitely the hot thing. If you heard some of the hubbub, if you've seen it, if you know what it is, and you kind of been on the fence uh, because you tried some of their previous games and you were like, oh, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe. Let me tell you, Lacuna is the real deal. It's flipping brilliant. Yeah. It is. It it is really really good. So, what it is 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 a game of taking flowers for yourself and not leaving any for the other person but the way it works is you have this sort of like big circle on the board and you're going to take this tube that the board game came in and you're going to put all the wooden flowers in it and there's a hole at the top and you're just going to shake it out like a salt shaker like sprinkle these board game components over it feels so nice to set up uh, and then you're going to just smoosh them about with your hand because you it's very free form in and that makes me go you know that sort of i'm i'm not oh, no, sure no, I, every, everything has to be precise really? in a board game like really? do not get that i get no. that a little bit but at first because because now i i am i've bought lacuna yeah. whole cloth uh -huh. Uh -huh. you see because of uh, the cloth, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. um I've, i bought it whole cloth and i'm like yeah i'm enjoying the salt shake a bit because it's fine that's how it works and it's fine it doesn't need to be precise you just need to spread them out with your hands a little bit so they're far apart uh, like a little bit apart from each other uh, and, and and then you just play and play takes about 10 minutes and you finish and you go oh that was good i enjoyed every moment of that and then you go well let's put all the flowers in the thing again and let's shake them out again <laughs> um the principle of the game is that each player has six player pieces right so it's a two-player game only uh and each turn you will place one player piece between two flowers that are of the same color now math is really cool in this game because there are 49 flowers so there are seven flowers of seven different colors the starting player will get one flower for free before the board is even set up so there's 48 flowers left and you will place these six player pieces of yours so 12 in total and it, you place them between two flowers of the same color and then you take those flowers for yourself uh 
the trick here is that there is a second phase to the game because that way each player will effectively take at the end of the game 24 flowers will be cleared and 24 flowers will remain on the board but the trick is is that once you all play finish playing your six pieces which stay on the board uh, a second phase begins where every flower that is cl closest your piece is closest to that flower you get to take that as well so when you're placing it to take two flowers you're also placing it in a way where you're like well is is it is it going to be close to it at the end of the game can someone place uh their piece closer to this flower will i get this or will i get that there's this sort of like level of uncertainty but also gaminess and and like you can block people you know, you can you can block it in such a way where, like, if you place it at an intersection of four flowers, like, so imagine, like, a cross. On the vertical, there is, like, bra two brown flowers, and on the horizontal, there's two blue flowers, right? So you place it right in the intersection of these four flowers, and that means that you get to take the blue ones, but the brown ones are blocked off for the other player, because your piece is in between them. So, so the other player can't take them. It's just like, all right! There's so many things you can do here with just placing a piece. But if you did that, you wouldn't be particularly close to either of the brown flowers. So is that the best move for you? Yeah, you don't know, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> it's smart. Yeah, it's really smart. Um, the, the first time we played it, I, I don't think I quite got it. Mm. Uh, I was just trying to collect as many flowers as I could. I didn't quite understand. Um, but... There's so many different things to think about. Like you're saying, you know, am I going to mm. block you? Can I, is there something, are there two flowers really far away, but actually there, there's a space between them that I could go in and take these two flowers and also then be near a different color flower. So I would take these, but also be, you know, good for end game score. It was, it was just, wow. Yeah. It was so many things to think about. And, and the way like I was thinking, oh, I hope you don't go here. And then you did go here. So then I have to change what I'm going to think about. And am I going to still go for these color flowers or am I going to go for a different color of flower? Mm. Oh, what is my best option here? Do you know what's also really good about it? Mm. Uh, I, I think, it, again, so this is a two player abstract game, right? So uh, we talked recently about that time you killed me uh, and how it's also a two player abstract game and how the theming was just so weird and like oh you're time traveling and like you're making copies of yourself in the past it, it doesn't make any sense right it was cool like visually like i thought the pieces were cool the art was cool but the theme was just nonsense and it, it actually detracted rather than like enhancing the play experience it detracted from the game and here it's just like it's beautiful sort of like starry sky made out of flowers rather than stars right night sky and and it's called lacuna and all that means is you know lacuna means the space between things and you're like yes this is exactly <laughs> what this is the Does space what it says on the tin right <laughs> and and then on on each side of the board like there is like these little circles that have l-a-c-u-n-a -A, right and you go oh there's six circles my six player pieces are the exact same size as these. Oh, I get it. I just put them on here. It's right? smooth. Yeah, it's so smooth and so <laughs> nice. And there's, it's full of these like little touches. It has the tiniest like circular rule book that uh, in the FAQ, and I thought this is brilliant because FAQs in board game rule books are normally like 
questions about the game and how the game should work. And it has a little bit of those. But also, like, can I put the board in my washing machine? Yeah, you know, wash it at this temperature and then whatever, right? With this kind of detergent. I was like, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. all right, okay. And, and so it's it's... I think from that, you can tell that this game is incredibly lightweight, incredibly easygoing. You could teach it to anyone. This is, this is like, I virtually mean a game for anyone, you know? It is not hard to understand. It is friendly for kids, for grandparents, you know, members of your family, whatever. It doesn't matter. You can play this with anyone. And it has that wonderful moment of, of appreciating what your opponent is doing. It's like, oh, that's a cool move. You did something cool there. And it sparks that like conversation. And and it's so light as a feather, but at the same time, really gamey, really chewy, right? Really like kind of makes you think about what you're doing and why you're doing. And and also so freeform. What what a what a weird but brilliant combination. There is also some cooperation involved in it, which I quite like, because at the end, um you are agreeing or disagreeing whether something is closer to you, whether a flower is closer to your piece or the other player's piece. Mm. And sometimes you have to get out a little ruler to see. Uh, and, you know, it, it was so nice because we were going, well, I think it might be you. I think it might be me. I don't know. We were just kind of trying to measure and it was just very nice. Yeah. Um, we were just working together to kind of figure these things out. It's It's weird how this very competitive game manages to evoke this sort of chill kind of positive vibe that just it's feels very positive isn't yeah, it? yeah. Uh, it's strangely positive it doesn't feel like a head-to-head when it is very yeah. much a head-to-head game. yeah because again coming back to the math there is that element of like there's 49 pieces mm. right so your objective to win right is you have to end up with four colors that you won there are seven colors so one one person is clearly going to win but the way you win a color is you have four pieces in that color and again there's seven pieces in each color so there's never going to be a tie right someone is going to win this game always um and and this that i don't know it's it's beautiful math the way it works (laughs) you know everything just fits i i love i love like the sort of perfect confluence of numbers that just like it complements the game very nicely and it, it works really good seven is yeah. a very pleasing number mm-hmm. generally mm-hmm. you know you have seven wonders of the world uh seven deadly sins like seven is a popular number yeah but it works it works well for this game and it, it's weird how it divides itself in those six turns as well because it's not seven turns it's six right oh <laughs> but 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 like the the one the one player getting you know the one piece and then 24 flowers being picked up in the first phase and 24 flowers mm. being picked up in the second phase. It's it's a very mathematically pleasing game, you know? I, and I don't know, it just adds to its charm, I think. I think it's one of the f- my favourite games that we've played this year. Wow. Yeah, really. It was, it was just so pleasant. I, I don't know another word for it. It was just so pleasant. It it took a lot of thinking, uh, but there was... There was interaction that you weren't expecting with it um because mm. you know you're out, out for yourself really but you're also looking at the other players flowers and what they've got and do you want to mess them up or do you want to try and go for something that's better for you or and you're, you're doing that maths all the time so you're mm. thinking about it all the time but i don't know it just was just very 
pleasant. It was quick to play. It was quick to get out. It was quick to pack away. Um, it was the salt shaker thing was just a lot of fun, and I don't think that will ever get old. Um, so mm. yeah, it was just I don't know, just really really nice. I I would like to warn people that at the moment I don't know how the distribution for this is going to shake out. So CMYK are doing their own distribution. Currently very easy to pick up uh, in the US, uh, but everywhere else it ships from US. Oh yeah. So it wasn't cheap to get it here in England, uh, but worth it though. For us, it was worth it, you know. But I think I think it's one of those things that are probably going to, you know, get wider distribution as it goes along as people pick up on it. Because yeah, this this is the, I I'm gonna say it easily the best game that CMYK has published. Better than Monica's, better than Wavelength. Um, I've not played Spots yet, but and I quite looking forward to playing spots actually but yeah this was something this was really good i really like an abstract game mm. and this really hit the spot for me mm. i don't do ratings but if i did this would be a 10 out of 10 i it does everything it needs to perfect i have no notes right it's it's just perfect like i don't have anything to quibble about there is not a single element of this game that I have any issues with and and furthermore it's, it's so moorish and that's what i don't expect because i expect it to be slight you know it is slight it is a slight game so i don't expect it to make me go yeah i, I want more i i, I want to play this again and it's so very rare that games achieve that for me and lacuna does so you know 10 out of 10 i guess there you go lacuna one of the best games elaine played this year Before we move on to our last game, we've had an email from Rick about Eon's End Legacy of Gravehold, which we spoke about in the last episode. As a huge fan of Eon's End, whilst listening to your latest podcast episode, I couldn't help but physically cringe every time you said you were going to talk about Legacy of Gravehold later in the podcast. All the more so when that segment started and you said it was your first Eon's Legacy game. I think it's fair to say that Legacy of Gravehold was not a Legacy game success. In fact, it almost ruins e ru ruined Eon's End for all of us. It went from our most regularly played game to not being played at all for almost a year. I actually thought you were very fair and generous with your assessment of the game. The core gameplay flow of variable turn order, work on your deck a bit while needing to deal with minions and setbacks, then switching to blasting the nemesis is pretty fundamental to the game. I think the switch to attacking the nemesis is akin to the switch to buying provinces in Dominion when you do make that switch. I do really enjoy deck builders and that gameplay cycle, so having a cooperative game with it is great. It is too bad Legacy of Gradefold was your first version of the game though. It is definitely intended for experienced Eon's End players. Eon's End Legacy was a much better experience and introduction to the game or I would have recommended The New Age which introduced their variable fully replayable expedition campaign system. Legacy of Gravehold really has a lot of issues I think including too many mages so you never feel connected to one unless you completely ignore over a dozen others and the story it was nice of you to say how did you put it that the narrative did give you a sense of who the characters were and their motivations. That might be the one nice thing you can say about Eon's End writing. But even that becomes very questionable, in my opinion, at the end of the Legacy of Gravehold campaign. 
I could go on and on, but this email is probably too long already. But they did also put a nice picture of their cat in the sun. Which so. is always appreciated, <laughs> yeah, by the way. Cats, always. dogs, other pets. Plants, anything. Yeah. Um, thank you for that email. I really actually... When, when we decided to do audience correspondence as a kind of a main part of uh, our podcast, it was you know like like throwing the dice and you never know what you're gonna get you know but i i think as much as i enjoy everyone writing in especially when people like you know comment on some of the more difficult subjects sometimes you know or or some of the comment like social commentary when we discuss uh certain board games you know it's it's also nice just to hear people's opinions about games especially when they contrast to our opinion you know because um and and it's nice to be filled in as well because i'm probably not gonna go back to eon's end because you know i whilst i can appreciate this was not the the, you know the kind of showcase example that i was expecting it to be i still got a pretty good sense of what the game is and for me traditional deck builders i think i'm done with them you know like dominion exists okay this is a cooperative one sure but but like I'm good. But I, I I always love hearing other people's opinions because that's the thing about being reviewers. I think some people sometimes see like uh, you know reviewers as some form of authority, you know, uh, and and then when you disagree, you really kind of like take that personally. But but I think the way I kind of want people to talk more about board games is just to be open about what they like and what they dislike because ultimately that's what we as reviewers do we we do have a broader knowledge base than i think a lot of people who play board games just by the nature of doing this job but but also we are still just like two people who have different tastes uh, and and trying to put kind of like um i'm I'm tangenting myself into into broader commentary about reviewership here, and I recognize that, and I apologize for hijacking this email. But one of the things that sometimes I think, you know, I find weird when I see people's responses to reviews are like, oh, like they didn't they didn't get that game because they didn't play it with the right people, or they didn't play it enough times, or you know, they have a different friend group, or uh, probably one of the things that really bothers me is when people say something like and i've seen this in relation to shut up and sit down like the quality of friends is better which is just (laughs) a weird weird thing to say don't say that don't say that that's not good uh or seeing people like that isn't particularly good um that's incredibly judgmental yeah no but but like no i think that's coming from the perspective like my quality of friends isn't as good as theirs. They have high quality friends. Putting the word quality on people is already... It's, but it's judgmental of your friends. Yeah, well, know. you know, maybe, you know, it's easy to see yourself as someone who, you know, whose social life maybe isn't doing as well as they want to, right? And I think it's coming from that. If I'm being generous, it's coming from that kind of perspective. But I, I think it's a weird way of looking at it. And... and I said this uh, on our Discord as well that like I think one one thing people don't understand is that a review is is a snapshot in time. It is very likely that a lot of the reviews for board games that exist from a lot of board game reviewing outlets, if you ask that person, if if that person who's let's say someone reviewed a game negatively, right? Uh, but if that person played that game without having played it before, six months later, right, they would have maybe a completely different impression of it. Or six months earlier, right? 
and the review would be completely different. I, it, it is a thing that is, it is a thing that's not tangible. It's just made tangible by the fact that we recorded it, right? But it's just a snapshot of a moment. And I, I think that's kind of why I wanted to do Talk Cardboard as a as an audience correspondence uh, feature as well as, as, a, as a kind of a board game review feature. is because no perspective on a game is fundamental, you know? Everything is intangible and the more kind of we talk about it and the more we hear from people the the broader picture we get the sort of more cohesive uh you know yeah the more we learn ourselves yeah right and i i think that's what what's nice about emails like that is that people just sometimes write in and say hey you thought this i thought that you know in a normal polite way uh which i, I value that a lot thank you our last game of this episode is Voidful, our first impressions. Voidful comes from publisher Mind Clash Games by designers Nigel Buckle and David Turchi with art by Ian O'Toole. Is it Turchi or Turchi? I'm never sure, but um, uh, those in the know, write in. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure I pronounce uh, yeah. names wrong all the time. So uh, I, I guess the big attraction here is that this, this sees the team of anachrony coming back together plus you know tool plus nigel buckle um and if you've played anachrony you will know what to expect if you haven't played anachrony or are not familiar with the output of uh mind clash games specifically this publisher they are big meaty games they are games with a lot of complex mechanisms um one of the things david tertsey i want to say tertsey maybe okay you know one of the things David Turtsey said to me once was, I design games that I want to play. I design games specifically for myself. Now, I'm paraphrasing, of course. I don't remember the exact quote. But that was the gist of it. And that kind of sat with me for a little bit. And I thought, I'm not sure that's good. <laughs> like, it's, it is admirable, certainly, right? Like, it is... It's sort of natural in a way because you think, well, you know, I know I like this. So if I like this, if I make something I like, the chances are good that someone else is out there who will also like this. And that's, you know, that's that's an admirable thing. But but also if you if you follow this philosophy to the letter and you execute it perfectly, then this game will appeal to specifically one person. <laughs> um uh, and of course, this is not just a David Tertsey design. This is also Nigel Buckle. And Nigel Buckle is credited first. So um, I, I don't know how much input each person has had into this game. But but wow, is it big and is it complicated? And that weight rating on BGG of 4.53 currently as it stands at the moment of recording is apt. It made me do one of those like laughs that where I just lose the plot uh, because there's just too much information trying to go into my brain at once and I my brain just can't cope and I just end up in sort of this hysterical state of <laughs> being. Yeah, like like that clip in our Cloudspire yes. review where you just fell apart laughing yes. and I took up my phone and started recording you because yeah, it was like hilarious. That. Yeah, so yeah, uh, this is what you expect going into Voidfall, right? So what is Voidfall? Voidfall is... Anything I say now is going to be undermined later, 
Because when I describe this game, it's going to sound like one thing. And it is actually another thing altogether. And that keeps happening over and over again. Now, this is the first impressions. So uh, we're probably going to end up covering this game in video. So if you want to know how that develops, you know, stay tuned to youtube.com slash nopen included. Um, so this is nominally a 4X game. So that's the, you know, explore, expand, exploit, exploit, um genre of games uh that is becoming a little tired now not only because of the you know cultural connotations but also because there's like a bajillion of them out there now uh but the idea is that you have like a hexagonal map in space you're playing different space houses they're all humans uh and and you know you build up armies and you conquer new territories you grow your thing uh your empire uh, you fight with other players, uh, and you do this in a very convoluted Eurogame kind of system. Um, we have played the tutorial of this, and this is our impressions of the tutorial. Now, the tutorial is like the main game, but but there are some certain complexities that are going to be added as we continue playing Voidfall in the future, um, that we sort of read through the rules and understand what's going on. There, there is definitely more to it, but also... Uh, I think the tutorial was interesting enough to talk about on its own. So that's what kind of we're doing that. Now, the first thing that struck to me about Voidfall is there's a wealth of narrative there for a game that is incredibly mechanical. There's, I think, like six or eight pages dedicated wow. just to the setting of the game about this universe in space and how there's humans and how they're you know split off into different factions and how there's corruption coming from the void and you need to make things pure meaningful pause and and you know you kind of expect this sort of like narrative to emerge from that and you expect it to find to to play a pretty fighty game you know you're building up these armies you're sending them out there's different ships you can you know invent technologies to you know have different spaceships and send them to different planets and you know conquer them fight with other players none of that happens now you might take that as criticism of the game but i would like to invoke scythe here and if people have played scythe which is in the same trapping of of, of sort of genre you know it's kind of like a euro gamey 4x game where there are hexes, you have armies, you move those armies, and theoretically you can fight people. There's a whole combat mechanism in that game. But you so very rarely do, and when you do, it's it's kind of like there's maybe like one, maybe two fights in the game. Some people might end up never fighting, and that's fine, because they're doing their own thing. Because most of the game and most of the meat doesn't come from that. It comes from the standard Euro game trappings of I build these things, these things score me things, they feed my engine, I get resources, I build more things. Because like that is effectively the essence of Voidfall, in simple terms. But it's not simple. And one of the things that you have to do when you get your copy of Voidfall is to follow this like tutorial, which is what we've played. And I got a really wrong impression of what's going to happen. Because what the rulebook says, I quote, Voidfall is an epic game with many choices and almost infinite variability. Even if you regularly enjoy complex games, the number of choices in your first game might feel overwhelming. In order to teach the game while also letting you play it, we have created a tutorial scenario which shows you the basic concepts of the game one by one. 
Playing the tutorial is strongly recommended if you plan on playing any of the game modes in the future, competitive, cooperative, or solo. So there you go. From reading that, I think you can see how when I read that, specifically the sentence, in order to teach the game while also letting you play it, you would get the impression that it is something like um, Ian's Trespass Odyssey, where there is a tutorial that you play step by step as the rulebook instructs you. And that's what I thought we were going to do. In fact, it then further on, specifically, this rulebook tells you that the way you play the tutorial is step one, open the compendium, go to page 10 to the setup chapter. Step two, follow the setup instructions, ignoring the blue co-op solo section. Step three, especially follow the additional tutorial instructions and examples from the setup. Uh, then I'm going to skip a little bit and Step four, after you finish the setup, continue to the tutorial chapter and follow the instructions there. It will guide you through your first game. So we did that. And I'd, I'd like people, I'd like to invite people to imagine, like I've read this, right? It says, do this, you know, like play it where you follow the setup. It will guide you through your first game, right? So imagine you go, okay, we're meant to play our first game this way. That's how we're meant to learn it. So you know, you say to your mates, hey, do you want to play this really complicated game, Voidfall? Um, okay, right, okay, well, let's go get together because we need to play it, you know, through this tutorial scenario that's guided step by step. Okay, so get everyone together, and then you open the glossary, and just like it says, you do the setup together, you know, everyone does the setup, and the setup is really step by step like, do this together as you're learning, and the special tutorial sections that say, oh, in this tutorial game, do this, and you're like, okay, okay, I understand. And then when you finish the setup, which I kid you not, took us one and a half hours, like, the length of a normal Euro game. I mean, we were learning what the components were, what they meant, what they were doing, you know, so that's good, you're, you're learning. Imagine, after going through all of that, to then going to the tutorial chapter, where it says... Now read the rule book and then just play the game. Who is responsible for this? I want to I, I want to know their name. I want to know their name cuz I I was upset. Okay, so that's my minor gripe aside. Um shall we talk about Voidfall the game? I was looking forward to playing it and then suddenly I couldn't play it because mm. we didn't know the rules and we needed to know the rules. Yeah, I wish I wish it really didn't say that. No, to its credit, I think the rulebook is it's very good at, at good. walking you through. You will still get confused because I think even with this sort of step-by-step -step approach, at least to setup, because then you just have to learn the game. But it, the way the rulebook is structured is that like it truncates the things you don't need to learn for the first tutorial. And then it, it truncates away the things that, you know, uh, like you're going to only need a third of the game in right mm -hmm. like when you because the game plays in free basically these big like they called cycles but it's basically free overarching rounds um so it says in round one you will need to know this and there's certain things you all need to know in rounds two and three and it does a very good job at sort of truncating the information you need to know but even then you know it sort of gets you get lost because there's just so much to learn because there are so many things. So many symbols. So many symbols. Uh, we'll talk about the symbols in a bit, right? Let's let's give people the idea of what Voidfall is. Right, okay. So, uh, in Voidfall, you're basically... You have a hand of cards. And these nine cards are the different possible actions you can do on your turn. So, each turn, you will play a card. 
and that card will have three different actions. Now you can normally do two of those actions, you choose which ones you like to do, they always have a cost, so like spend some resource and then activate like an effect. What could be this effect? You could invent a technology that uh, would give you access to different new ships or upgrade your existing ships or make your economy a little bit better. Uh, you could advance on your civilization tracks, which is basically kind of like going, your civilization has learned to do these things, and you get bonuses as you advance on these tracks. You could get an agenda card, which is a new scoring condition that you will score points for at the end of each of the three cycles. You could... Increase your population. Increase your population. You could build, uh, like, guilds, which are basically mines. They, they mine various resources. You could um, recruit more ships. You have more troops and you can reposition your ships, uh, fly them about through different sectors. You can attack another player. You can attack the the void fall things, you know, the orange things that are controlled by no player. And, and they just sit there uh, in empty sectors. They're basically, um, I guess they're kind of like the ancients in Eclipse, where in Eclipse you couldn't just go and take a sector there's something there you need to defeat it you need to do some combat to kind of like take over that sector take over yeah. that sector right um yeah you could build shipyards that let you build ships you could build defense outposts that you know protect your there's sector so if you get attacked you there's a lot of things and they all sort of can join in in a different way now, where this feels different, as I mentioned, is that it doesn't feel like a very attacky game. It doesn't feel like you're going to do much attacking. And again, there's a lot of different scenarios. So maybe there's ones that encourage that sort of fighty kind of uh, thing. But it feels a lot more like, more than any game, it feels more like Scythe, where it is mostly about building your economy and building things that you have agendas for because those agendas they say like oh for every sector where you have two shipyards you'll score six points at the end of every phase so you're like okay i better conquer more sectors uh because then i will have uh spaces to build shipyards and then i will um you know kind of be able to score points off of those that's mostly what you're doing of course you want to expand because the more sectors you have the more chances you have to build things that let you score points. That's pretty much the idea of it. So, you know, the, the, it feels like the, the map, the way, the one tutorial map that we played, the way it was constructed is that everyone has just about enough space. There's one, like, tension sector in the center that one player is probably going to go for at the end of the game. And you might fight over it a little bit, but but you're so constricted in terms of what actions you can do because actions always cost resources you never have enough resources there's a thing from agricola where you have to feed your people so you better make sure you have enough resources to do that as well because otherwise just like in agricola for every person you can't feed you will lose three points there's the thing like in eclipse where you need to do combat because you know even empty sectors have like the void or whatever and you need to fight those right um yeah it's an amalgam of a lot of games, but it feels like you you are playing a Euro game with these, the very complicated Euro game, with these bits strapped on from all the games we've seen in the past. <laughs> Do you agree? How did you feel? I don't know how I felt about this game. There were parts of it that I really enjoyed, but that was the Euro gamey parts. Um, because I... I 
I think maybe it's just because it, it is our first impressions and we only have played one game of it and it was the tutorial. So it was very much a learning experience of what everything does and how mm. everything works and how everything flows. Um, so I think I don't have a full picture of how this, this works, particularly the combat. I enjoyed the Euro gamey part where you're building up your own engine and trying to get the most points out of the different things you're building and whatever. But I didn't enjoy the combat part. Mm. The, the, the competing with the void was the voidful, whatever it is. The, yeah, the void mm. was fine. Like to, to have something that stops you from just blanket taking over a sector without question was, mm. was fine. That, that was something else to think about and that was all right. But when there was that one hex that was in the middle of the player board... Uh, so you started on one side and I started on the other. And when there was that one in the middle, I just, I didn't want to compete for it. I just couldn't be bothered to compete for it because I didn't feel that combat was necessary for me to win the game. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. And that's, that's why I'm thinking I'm, I don't quite have a feel of the game properly. Yet. Yeah. Because is it possible to win without doing much combat in this game, apart from maybe with the void? You know, is mm. it is it possible to not compete with other players for, for different sectors? Probably not. I don't know. Um, so, or, or is that just part of the game that I'm kind of missing? I don't know. I think you were on the money. I think that, like, the point advantage that you would have gotten fighting for that space is really marginal. So there's this weird mechanism where, like, things are corrupted and the sectors you take over are corrupted. So you have to spend actions and effectively play because you can't play all the cards you have in your hand. There's only, like, a certain number of cards you can play each round. Uh, That's clever. It depends on the scenario as well. So, like, in the tutorial scenario, like, the first round was, like, you can only play three cards and then you can only play four cards and so on, right? And, like, so round length is variable and it's scenario-dependent. So they can sort of try and evoke different feelings out of each scenario and, like, what you have to do. But it felt like even... even in a scenario, so I'm, again, speculating here, um, and we'll have more words, words on the voidfall in our final review. Even in a scenario like that is combat geared, because, because so much of it is that sort of Eurogamey build things to have stuff, you know? Do, do you want to spend time doing this for, like, a very marginal points advantage? Like, or... Are there other things you could be doing? That would give you a much better points advantage, yeah. Exactly, yeah. So that part to me felt very suspect. Now, the combat itself is incredibly peculiar because um, the way it's marketed is like, this is a purely deterministic combat system. You will know the outcome before you go into combat. There's no randomness. Like, yeah, there's no dice roll yeah, or anything the, like that. And it's true. So you have like two steps to combat, which is an approach step and a salvo step. So the approach step is... You trigger any effects that you have that will trigger in the approach step, which is mostly dealing damage to your opponent, right? And then in the salvo step, you determine initiative based on whatever ships are left on each side. And then one by one, you deal one damage until a person has no ships left. So yes, it is deterministic. Is it interesting? I don't know. I don't think so. Because it, it, it's it, they, there is even... So this app isn't out yet, but there's going to be an app that basically you feed in all the ships that are there and it just says this is the result right 
So if they felt like it was necessary to make that app, to skip through the combat, which is should be the exciting part mm. of this game of, like, big ships in space meet each other and fight, right? Like, they go, nah, actually, that's probably too arduous. We'll just make an app that pre-calculates it. And fair enough, because the combat is simple when it's just, like, basic Corvettes fighting basic Corvettes. But you start introducing these, like technologies that modify the corvettes or the like these other ships that have all kinds of different other abilities and you go wait there's a lot of symbols uh and i don't um we're going to talk about symbols in a second i don't even know exactly how it works and um you know let's let's try and correspond the symbols to what it says in the glossary and then something you'd learn yeah Uh, so so you wouldn't necessarily feel like that you know four or five games in Mm. you would know you, you really would know if it, it was a silly idea for you to try and enter this combat or not before yeah. you did it. But that that's sort of self-defeating, isn't it? Because it's like, oh, you know, I could really do with this. Oh, okay, I can't defeat it. Oh, I guess because, you know, I know I can't defeat it because I know the outcome. So I won't do it. So that do you know well, what? then so then you build up to and then your opponent do does something else well and, yeah i mean yeah but that's the game isn't I guess, it? <laughs> yeah you're both trying to build up to different things no yeah and i take that on and i understand that but for me there was an element of it like feeling very convoluted but at the same time like sometimes unnecessary because you have to do this work you simulate the combat in your head to not play it out i get the point of it but Oh, is that fun? I'm always, you know, I have to ask, is that fun? Is is this is this kind of like what people enjoy out of the game? And I guess the answer is that the designers, Nigel Buckle and David Tudz do, right? And good on them. But I don't, it, it's a very specific game and it will appeal to a very specific set of people. And I think that's interesting. But I also wonder, could this not have been a little bit more trimmed down and and introduced like a little bit of uncertainty? Because otherwise, you're creating systems that you loop through that you're not going to use. Right, but there are so many games already that do have chance, particularly in combat. That's true. Do we need another one? That's true. Would this game be better for it if it did have that? I don't think so necessarily. If... If it, this is because it has this euro aspect, mm. you know that if you build up using, you know, getting your resources and, mm. and uh, getting technologies, things like that, then you probably will be able to take on this opponent or or to get this sector. Mm. You know that that's probably a thing. So that gives you a goal to to work towards because mm. you can already figure out how to do it. And and yes, you're right. Like the other players player or players are gonna also build up things but can you do it before they do it because you can see what they're doing too when we got our review copy of Scythe ages ago Mm. i remember uh we were like we had a copy before anyone else did wow and and well i don't know i somehow convinced jamie stegmaier to send us a copy anyway so so we had Scythe, and a lot of our friends group were like or play group, you know, we're like, oh, I really want to try this because there was so much hype about Scythe, right? So we were playing it and it was, I remember it was the second game with the same group of people of Scythe. And one person was doing really well. And a couple of people were like, I think we should attack him. Yeah, we should attack him. Let's attack him. So we attacked him. I attacked him. 
And he looked at me and said, this is not what you do in this game. You don't fight in this game. And I said, well, now we do, right? And that was a valid move. But I think what this example illustrates is expectation, mm. right? I'm not saying that what happened wasn't valid gameplay. I certainly subverted an expectation that this player had of this game and went, well, you know what, but you can also do this. You can also play it this way, right? But there's something to be said about setting those expectations and the way Voidfall does it. And this is there's a really weird arc where you go, oh, it's like Eclipse, right? Or TI-4. Uh, but then you build all these combat units and you go, oh, it's not like that because we score a lot of points from these agenda cards. And actually, like, <laughs> to illustrate this, there's, there's a triangle that you build in your sector, which is like basically a defense station. So if someone attacks you in the approach step, you can kill off one of the ships you know sounds good except most of the time no one attacks you so what the station is actually useful for is point scoring opportunities because you know you build it you get points for like every sector where you've built it or whatever depending on whatever scoring conditions you manage to accrue so you get this expectation of like you you subverted it once already like this is a combat game oh no this isn't a combat game and then oh no this is a combat somewhere something gets lost yeah to me it almost felt like and and this is going to sound weird but it, it almost felt like the combat was there like you were saying in scythe mm. you know if someone is doing a little bit too well then you attack them because when you when if you manage to win the combat you mm. get points based on how many points they have how many uh, glory that they have mm -hmm. um so if you're not doing great and you don't have a lot of glory, yeah. then you attack them, take the sector, and you get those glory points. No, they become so the target, yeah. They become the target. Mm. Well, in a two-player game, it's it's a bit, a bit weird. But the thing is... It would be weirder in a three-player <laughs> game because the person who wins probably is not involved in any of that. Right, maybe, yeah. They're just scoring their things. And <laughs> well, but that's, again, yeah. that's like another branch, isn't it? But yeah. The thing is with that is that if someone isn't doing well, then they're probably not going to be able to attack you anyway. Right, yeah. No, well, the thing is also, I think a, a, there's a lot of systems in this game and we're kind of Because they're probably trying to feed their people. Yeah, like touching on one element of it, right? And and I, I this feels like one of those cases where they thought about things and how would this work? And they found how to, you know, like... I subvert a game design trope and it's like, mm. oh, well, we're going to fix it like this. But like, it feels like patch upon patch upon patch upon patch upon patch. And then you have this sort of Frankenstein's cardboard, um, <laughs> uh, you know, going, I am a game. Um, and you're left asking, are you? <laughs> um, I don't know. Okay. I've been very negative so far. I, I sense it, right? There are a lot of things that feel very compelling because that Eurogame puzzle is is kind of fun. I, I'm not going to lie. It was hard to learn. It was very hard to learn. But but once I kind of came to grips with it, I was enjoying, you know, building the stations and feeding my mm -hmm. people and, you know, kind of planning out that... It's going to sound weird. Planning out that expansion of my empire. You know, like, how can I consume more and purify things? Mm um oh, purify the others uh there's weird theming anyway and and you know like i i know how many turns i have i know what actions i can do i know the costs i have for them i know the resources i have 
I know what I can try to achieve, but there's so many dials kind of spinning at the same time that you can't quite always put it together and you kind of just hedge your bets and go, I think I can achieve this much, you know, this round. And you try your best to execute it, mm. paying all the resources and twiddling all the dials and, you know, getting bonuses and upgrades. And, and, and there's a lot of fun in that. Like, for example, there's the system with the agenda cards uh, is very neat. I really like it because one of the things that it does is that um, one of the actions lets you take an agenda card. There's four different agenda cards and they will provide you more scoring opportunities four each side. Four different sets. Yeah, four different cards. sets, right? And you can't have multiples of the same set in your scoring area. But what they also do is that if you do choose to play them, you can only play them with a certain action card because there's nine different ones and each agenda corresponds to two different action cards. So you're already like, okay, if I want to play this, I need to do this action. But then it has a thing at the top of the card that says, oh, but if you do play this this round, you will also get this bonus action. So not only are you only scoring points, but you also get to do an extra thing. So that's cool. But on top of that, right? Like you might even play these agenda cards just to do that bonus action. You go, I don't care about these scoring conditions. I have better ones, mm -hmm. but I'll grab it because I'll do this bonus action. There's so many things that kind of emerge out of the system that are fun. And they, they're fun to kind of manipulate and twiddle and, and try and achieve... You always, you can form a cohesive plan of what you're trying to do. Can you? <laughs> well, you can try, right? Some people might be able to. <laughs> okay, let me rephrase that. You can try and imagine a plan, right? And you can try and get there. And there's there's a lot of different systems in the way that you can try and wrangle to kind of conform into this plan. So that's... That's kind of fun. But there's also a lot of things like the agenda cards. I remember um, some, so like once once you take an agenda, a new one will eventually come out, like, uh, you know, to replace it, right? And they have like a number of different scoring factors. And based on sort of what strategy you were following, you could get an agenda card randomly that just comes out. That is amazing for you and scores you so many more points than anything else in the game. Mm. And that feels kind of weird because like when there's a difference between an agenda card that scores you 30 points at the end of the round and an agenda card that scores you 10 points at the end of the round and it came because of a random card draw, I, you know, trying to manage all these systems and what clenches you the game is just the right card came out. That, that can feel a little weird, I think. Yeah, I suppose so. But everyone has got the same chance of that happening that a good card is going to... And I guess as you get more used to what cards are in those decks and how the systems will work together, you you might be able to work towards something that is on an agenda card. Sure, yeah, but... Uh, I don't know. So, okay, uh, then then I have to ask, if, if combat, for example, is so incredibly deterministic and just pushes, like... There's no luck. There's no. It's it's all. It's just predetermined. You know. It's it's all about skill. There's no luck. There's no randomness. But then the actual scoring of the game is you know wildly off the hook, mm. right? Like how does that work? That feels very peculiar to me. And mm. so like in principle, I liked the experience of playing it, and and I liked 
the, the many systems that are in it, like the um, the resource gathering system, which is like there's three steps to it. First of all, you have like you count the number of guilds, then you multiply it by the population. That gives you your production. The production determines how much of the resources you actually produce, which is kind of on the opposite sides of the dial. And then you actually have to produce, which outputs that production of the resource <laughs> into the actual resource. So like it's wheels within wheels, literally. Uh, because the, all the, the resources are on mm -hmm. dials, right? I, 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 it's arcane. I appreciate that. But I kind of enjoyed indulging in that, you know? But at the same time, like, there were moments in it where, like, well, there's a co-op mode in this game. And if we're barely fighting each other, would it make more sense just to play the mm -hmm. co-op? Yeah, but then the co-op mode is like, you know, this game is, again, 4.5 on the weight scale out of 5 on BGG. And the co-op mode adds, like, another third of the rules on top oh, of wow. that so and more systems more dials more mechanisms more everything it's big we're gonna try and wrangle it but our first impressions were weird i don't know do you feel like weird is the answer do you do you think um, like discordant discordant I think is what i would say i wouldn't say weird but discordant because there were like i said there's lots of lots of bits of it that i did like I really like how the rounds weren't a set number of turns. Mm. Uh, the card determined how many turns you would get. Um, and then the cards also uh, took away some of, of your cards. So mm. you didn't have all the options of everything. You couldn't do any everything. Yeah. You know? So you've really had to think about how you were going to uh, piece together this thing. Uh, I like that a lot. In In this tutorial, combat annoyed me because it just felt like it got in the way. Because I just didn't want you to start attacking me. I wanted to do my own thing. I wanted you to be doing your own thing. I wanted to be doing my own mm. thing on my own. And not, not to be really interacting with you too much. Mm. And that sounds awful. And I don't, I don't, it's not a slight on the game. It just, I just think it means I haven't played this game enough. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to playing more of it. I think what you mentioned, the, the cards that say, oh, in this, in this cycle, you'll have that many rounds, right? Uh, and play that many cards. I think what's cool about that is that, like, it also had specific scoring conditions only applicable for this yes. round. So it's almost like it tailors a puzzle for you. And also, each scenario pick says only these houses are available, only these factions, effectively, are available for this game. So it's it's almost like curating an experience. And I'm really looking forward to playing more different scenarios to see how that experience relays. Now, of course, I know that at the beginning of this, and that's why I started the bit like that, you know, about uh, Voidfall. I know at the beginning of this review, uh, we probably scared a lot of people off just by saying, this is one of the more complicated games that exists out there, you know? And and that's fine, right? But I, I want to see if this discordancy goes away and mm. and if those systems that don't make any sense yet... Or, you know, our prognostications for these systems effectively yeah. cohere into something more pleasant. But yeah, big boy. Uh, pretty, I like Ian O'Toole's art. I think one of the things that Ian O'Toole excels at is is not just like an iconography, uh, because the iconography is, you know, uh, important to get the game across, but also like setting the tone and the mood. And I think um, one of the things that Ian is clearly passionate about it's very obvious it's weird space you know weird space things and there's definitely a lot of weird space things <laughs> like some of the factions look really kooky like growing extra brains outside of their skull uh, you know 
like you pointed out, maybe biologically not the most sound thing to do. But (laughs) but then you ask, like, well, well, what made them do it? Right. Like, you know, and I I, I like that. Um, One last thing on the iconography. I did say we're going to talk about this. I think once I get used to the 18,000 icons, I will be better at this game. There is there is a glossary of all the icons. I'm going to put an asterisk in front of the word all. And I think there's there has to be at least 100 icons there. At least. I think there's more. <laughs> I think there's probably more. I imagine there's at least 100 different icons. And then you start looking up, like you get like this technology card and it has, the, well, if you, this icon equals that icon, if that icon, then that icon. You know, it's like board gaming language, right? But then, so you have four icons to figure out what this technology does. And then you go to the glossary and you find that only two of these icons exist in the glossary. And you go, I don't know what the other two do. So you go to the actual glossary and then just read (laughs) what the technology does. At that point, you think, why did you just put it in text on the card? Because if I had to go, I couldn't work it out from the icons. I had to go to the rule book to read the text on what the thing does. The game is not language independent, so why not? Yeah. There's already cards with text on them. There's too many. I'm, I'm sorry to say this. There are too many icons. Like, I know, like, you know, Race with the Galaxy, I think, was the game that popularized this. Icon to icon means icon icon. Oh, okay, right? And if there's, like, 25 icons, you learn and you go, okay, right? Eventually, I understand and everything makes perfect sense. I think Voidfall is finally the game that tested the limits of your brain's, anyone's, human brain capabilities of absorbing a number of icons and learning a language from that. No, that's, it's too much. I'm sorry, that's just too much. You know, when, when I learn, uh, so I, I did a couple of months of Russian, You're, you, you know this, I've told you this. Mm-hmm. Um, so the teacher expected us to have learned the Cyrillic alphabet in the first lesson. Uh, that was the first lesson of like whatever, whether it was 40 minutes or something, you have a yeah. lesson. And so we all went in having no idea of the of what any of the letters meant. Mm-hmm. And she expected us to know what they all meant by the end. And this is how that felt. Yeah. Where you're going, I don't know. Well, and that's only like, I don't know how many letters are in the Cyrillic yeah. alphabet, 20 something. Russian has vowels and consonants that don't exist in other languages. <laughs> how are you supposed to learn that? Right. Uh, and yeah. Right. Like... <laughs> Sorry, I might have my accent might have played those up a bit, but like they're pretty much that, right? I get that they're derived from like I and U and stuff mm. like that, right? Mm. But but they are unique sounds to the Russian language or maybe Russian adjacent languages as well. Ah, anyway, this is how that felt. Yeah, yeah. Like, please learn an entire new language, uh, yeah. the beginnings of a new language, and be fairly proficient in it. Mm. Uh, at the end of the first lesson please yeah okay uh so that's voidfall uh a bit of a hodgepodge overview uh apologies it's a big game um there's there's a lot to tackle we'll have a more rounded yes condensed and informed impression sometime on youtube or at least on this podcast that's all the games. If you have anything to say to us about any of them, don't forget to drop me an email, elaine at nopunincluded.com, or if you have any general questions or comments. We had an email from Alexander about Monopoly. They say, 
Sorry if this email seems too nitpicky, but your analysis with Zoe B about Monopoly seems to miss some points. Namely, that the game of Monopoly is not satire, it was political activism. In short, Elizabeth Maggie was a staunch Georgist. Georgism is an economy philosophy that suggests the government should focus on taxing usage of public goods, most notably land. In other words, Georgists want to reduce or remove taxes like income tax and sales tax and instead tax property. Elizabeth Maggie created the Landlord's Game as a simulation to show how a land tax would work better than the current tax system. For that end, the Landlord's Game is actually two games with different taxation rules. This second version can be somewhat similar to the modern Monopoly variant in that all the taxation and fee money gets put in a central pot and then when the first player to land on free parking gets the pot, uh, although the original rules were less random in how public funds were used. This free parking variant is often noted to last longer than the standard Monopoly, meaning that it is harder for one player to hoard all the money, meaning that even the version we are left with today actually does make Maggie's point. I will say that I don't think the Landlord's Game is particularly satirical. However, I also think that it is unfair to judge Elizabeth Maggie's efforts based on the game Charles Darrow and Hasbro put out, the man who literally stole her patented work. Based on what I have read, the students who played Maggie's game typically removed the taxes from the game so it would play faster. So you have a point that players preferred the game where one person succeeds in hoarding wealth. Still, judging Maggie's work based on the modern derivatives makes as much sense as judging authored books based on fan fiction written about them. Well, I agree completely. Well, not completely, but I agree with the sentiment of the email. Um, what's weird is like how much your brain retains the pop culture sound bites versus the things you've actually learned. So when I did the video on uh, Fuchin Magnet, I've learned all of this. I, yeah. When I read the email, I was like, oh, yeah, it's coming back to me. But I didn't retain any of that. I retained the sound bites like, oh, it was satire, you know. So thank you for writing in. Actually, uh, I, I really appreciate you correcting me on the matter. And it's it's good to have a more nuanced uh, sort of look at what Monopoly was. And yeah, like it was silly of me to say that. Uh, you know, like, oh, does it succeed as satire? Well, that wasn't even the game, right? But I will say that the one bit I do disagree with this email is, is it's I'd still say maybe it was satire. Now, I appreciate that there were, you know, two versions of the game, one that was George's and one that wasn't George's, and the one that wasn't George's was the one that basically made it and become a monopoly. So if you have two rule sets, you effectively end up with, you know, one saying this is how it should work and this is how it actually works mm. and how it actually works is stupid and bad and how it should work is good and better for everyone you know i think that was the intention from what i understood doing research on monopoly right and i'd still say this is satire because because even, even a lot of activism is satire a lot of activism works through satire by highlighting how something fundamentally doesn't work and why that is silly and saying this is how it should work. That to me is satirical, uh, but I think it's kind of fine to disagree on that point. But th- that isn't the point of the email. I think the point of the email is to say it's unfair to judge Elizabeth Maggie's efforts on what we have now, which is not her game, right? Or her two games, as it were. Um, so yeah, apologies for that. Uh, I'll I'll. I'll try and erase more sound bites from my head and stick to the facts.
Talking of sound bites, can you let everybody know what is in our bonus episode and how can they access it? Oh, it's a good bonus episode. We talk about the special edition of Castles of Burgundy. And also, you tell me about a game that you play that's called... Bandada. And from what I understand, it's a game about birds and I can't wait to hear more about it. You can hear about it too if you become a Patreon member of Talk Hardwood and No Pun Included. That's at patreon.com slash no pun included where you'll get access to all our bonus episodes, a dedicated RSS feed with the main and bonus episodes together, and also access to a Discord server where people chat more about Talk Hardboard, No Point Included, and all kinds of other board game things, uh, share advice, information, uh, opinions, uh, all the board game goodness. Uh, you can get all of that by becoming a Patreon member of us. And that way you support us And we get to keep on doing this. So thank you very much. Otherwise, there's going to be more reviews coming up on youtube.com slash no pun included. Specifically, reviews of Dorf Romantic the board game and Lords of Ragnarok and where it all went wrong. Lastly, and I don't really need to ask this, but what is the game of the episode? Is it Voidfall, Elaine? Was yours Voidfall? No. (laughs) What is it? Do you want to say it on three? Yeah, okay. One, two... Three, Stone Age. Oh, oh, wait, we didn't review that. Lacuna. Stone Age. Sorry, I just picked a random game. I'll <laughs> <laughs> confuse anyone that didn't bother listening to the rest of the podcast, won't it? <laughs> it's Lacuna. Lacuna is the game of the episode. And with that, why don't you say goodbye, Elaine? Goodbye, Elaine. Goodbye, Elaine.